And this morning, as you can see, we're going to recognize the birth of our country and talk about some of the things that are yes. Amen. Some of the things that are sadly being set aside and revised by many in places of power today. And I'll open our time with this reminder. It's been said that there are two topics that are off limits for civil conversation. And they are, thank you, Mike, they are religion and politics. So just to make sure we offend everybody today, we're going to talk about both of those things. Now... I think it's essential that we as Christians understand not only our rights, but our responsibilities before God as the only source of salt and light in this great nation today. It is the church alone that is the purifying and preserving influence of any particular nation. And as I said, in our beloved country, many things have been changing. And there are those who are in control of the textbooks in school who are omitting or rewriting history. And much of what we believe today has been turned into anything, or what we hear today, has been turned into anything other than the founder's original intent. Now, I do have to say that there are many today in our school system and in the media who have been selling a bill of goods instead of telling about the Bill of Rights. And the fact is, there's been an effort to redefine the First Amendment to impose upon us the separation of church and state. Now, as it pertains to the church, the First Amendment actually reads, Congress... There's the one who is being bound and instructed. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I submit to you that there are many state governments as well as portions of our national government who are seeking to violate our First Amendment rights as Christians. And the phrase separation of church and state is not found in the Declaration of Independence. It is not found in the Constitution of these United States. It is not found in the Bill of Rights. It is not found in any of our founding national documents. The terminology actually crept into U.S. phraseology under false pretenses, if you will, if you will. Where the phrase wall of separation, which was a quotation out of context from Ephesians 2.14, that was used in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to the Anabaptists who had some concerns that maybe our country was going to do what England did, and that was to establish a state religion. And therefore, Congress is bound from establishing a state religion, imposing restrictions on the free exercise of religion, and creating a national denomination as they did in England. Listen, the First Amendment imposes restrictions on Congress, not the church. As a matter of fact, so do all the first ten of our amendments known as the Bill of Rights. We also need to remind ourselves that the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the United States Constitution are all based on Judeo-Christian values found in the Word of God, the Bible. Now, this is immediately made evident, even in the opening words of the Declaration of Independence, where the authors wrote for us, We hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal and they are endowed by who? Their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet again, we live in the age of revisionist history, which can only lead to the degradation of morality, the promotion of immorality and idolatry. So what is our role as American Christians today in the political arena? Should our voice be heard? Somebody say yes. Somebody say amen. Now, let me remind you of a young man named Daniel who was carried away against his will into a pagan and idolatrous nation, a powerful nation, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that point in time. Daniel 2, 20 to 21, we're told Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This was Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar about a dream that God had given him the interpretation of that none of the king's uh, magicians, so to speak, were able to interpret for him. Daniel was a man who was deeply entrenched in a pagan government, albeit against his will. But even in the midst of a pagan land and government, he had an influence for good, and so should we. Now, we might consider ourselves in the same situation, only the forcing of pagan influence upon us is not from being exported to another country, but rather from being imported from the kingdom of darkness into the laws of our land. But like Daniel, we should be salt and light in the midst of an immoral, carnal, and idolatrous time in our nation's history. And we're going to find in our text this morning that the institution of human government is indeed divine. It doesn't always operate divinely, but the plan of government is divine nonetheless. And since the institution of human government is God's plan, why would God make a plan and then not want his people involved in the plan? We need to be involved in the political process in these great United States of America. So what is our place? How active should we be? Is there a line that we would and could cross? Should we oppose the government when it infringes upon our inalienable rights to practice our belief system freely and openly? Well, our title and goal this Sunday before the 243rd anniversary of our nation's birthday is a reminder that we have since the beginning and still are today one nation under God. One nation under God. Now, because our schools don't teach history like they used to when I was growing up when we did our homework on a stone tablet with a chisel... But we learned about the foundations of our country. Let me remind some of you about George Washington's comments in his very first inaugural address as the president of these United States. He said this familiar quote, The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. Listen, things are a-changing in our country. 
There was a Baptist preacher here in the United States who was arrested for protesting outside a public library because the public library was hosting a drag queen reading session for elementary age children. He was arrested after he refused to leave the public sidewalk outside a public library hosting this particular event. And Brad Dacus and the wonderful people at Pacific Justice Institute are representing Ashvin Yankton, a pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church in Spokane, Washington. The number of criminal charges being filed against the pastors and evangelists across the country in the last few years should be alarming to every freedom-loving American, said Brad Dacus, concerning this issue. Listen, at this drag queen book reading in a public library, there were snipers on the roof to take out any particular protesters who may have crossed the line in their minds. And the Spokane Public Library hosted this drag queen story hour for 50 children and their families. Listen, our schools are normalizing immorality. They're teaching fantasy as facts concerning how we came into being in the creation story recorded in the Bible. They're eliminating any portion of our history that relates to the Christian influence of the founders of these great United States. And listen, church, it is more important now than ever to stand for the truth. For should the Lord tarry and not come for the church in the near or immediate future, Our children and our grandchildren are going to be part of a godless society where Christianity has become illegal. But we need to remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And listen, if we have been called into his marvelous light, and light is a metaphor for truth and purity, and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, then that means we are to be the truth bearers who walk in personal purity and the pure wisdom from above, even and especially when our nation begins to move away from being one nation under God, which is the very thing that makes us indivisible. So with that said, I forgot to say, because I've been so excited about this message, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, will be our reading this morning, and I'll turn there with you also, since I forgot to turn there myself. Romans chapter 13, is that in the New Testament? Where is that at? Anyway... Romans 13, 1 to 7. Would you stand and read with me, please, these awesome reminders about God's institution of human government. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. 
Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay, let's just skip the next word. (laughs) Because of this, you also pay what? Taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We thank you, Lord, for our nation. We thank you for the wonderful things that are part of our history all the way back to the founding fathers and their love and admiration for you, even within the diversity of their understandings of who you are and your role. God, we recognize that your word is threaded through our declaration, our constitution, and our bill of rights. And Lord, I pray that you would call these things to our mind today because they are founded upon your magnificent and unparalleled word. Speak to our hearts this 4th of July week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, the first thing I would like to remind you of this morning is the conditions under which Paul wrote what we just read. At this time, Christianity was believed to be a sect of Judaism, which was a legal religion under Roman law. But inside of Judaism was a group known as the Zealots. So they were referred to as the dagger bearers. And their motto was, we have no king but Jehovah. So they rejected any form of of human government. They were unruly insurrectionists, constantly causing trouble for Rome, and it is with this group that the Sadducees and Pharisees sought to make an association with Jesus that would put him in peril with the Roman authorities. Now we're told in Luke 23, 1-2 that the whole multitude, multitude of them arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, did Jesus do this? Did he forbid people to pay taxes? Well, the Bible answers the question in Luke 20, 25, where Jesus himself said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus was acknowledging the uh, divine ordinance of human Government, And this was his stance on taxes, so to speak. And it was being perverted by his enemies. And this is exactly what is happening to you and I today. What we believe is being perverted. And the word pervert in the Bible means to become its opposite. And there are things said about us today that are exactly the opposite of what are true. We are told to love our enemies. We are told to do good to those who hate us. Do people hate us today? So what do we do? Do we return evil for evil or we return good for evil? Now listen to this. This is an article from the Washington Standard that was published just last week by a quote-unquote Islamophobia expert. The title of his article is, Christianity is an oppressive political system bent on discrimination. Now is that true? Or is that exactly the opposite of the truth? Now, the man's name is Todd Green. He is an associate professor of religion at Luther College, a former advisor to the U.S. State Department on Islamophobia, and he wrote this article for the Muslim online publication called Al-Muslima, sounding the alarm about the dangers of a violent, aggressive, and authoritarian religious faith called Christianity. 
His article implies that you are an anti-Muslim hate speaker if you oppose jihad terrorist violence and the Sharia law oppression of women. And listen, if you believe what the founding fathers fought and died for, in our day you're some kind of right-wing extremist, hateful bigot being treated that way, however, puts us in pretty good company. Because that's exactly how Jesus was treated as well. Now listen, the idea of human authority has a divine origin. And Paul says we are to be subject to God's ordinances and not resist or oppose the concept of there being governmental structure. And therefore, we, as God's children, ought to be the biggest proponents of and participants in the ordinance of human government. Now... In other words, when God declares an ordinance over the earth, who is he going to first enlist to play a part of it and even run it? Is it going to be the heathen? Is it going to be the pagan? No, it's going to be his people, even though the heathen and the pagan are subject to him as well. And our own history will remind us how the founding fathers viewed this particular precept that Christians are to be involved. As a matter of fact, John Jay the first chief justice of the first Supreme Court appointed by president, the first president, George Washington himself, said this on October 12, 1816, and I quote, Providence, divine is implied, has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our, what kind of nation? Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Could you imagine John, or, uh, John Roberts saying that today? He would be run out of town immediately. I can't imagine him saying that anyway. I wish he would say something like that because that's what the first chief justice said because of his understanding of the original intent of the founding fathers. This is a Christian nation. It is founded on Christian principles. And the fact is, there's never been a time in our history where every single citizen of the United States was a Christian. But that doesn't deny the fact that all of our laws, all of our founding documents are based on the B-I-B-L-E. And that's the book for me. Amen. Now, think about this. What John Jay said in light of Proverbs 29.2. Proverbs says, when the righteous are in authority, the people do what? Rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Now, this is why we must participate in the process and politics seeking to remain our status or maintain our status as one nation under God. Now, listen this morning. Here's the first of three things I want you to consider on this Independence Sunday week. The influence of the church will be reflected in national policies. The influence of the church will be reflected in national policies. Now listen, there's a lot of talk about parties today. And our party affiliation should be spiritual, not political. The fact is, we are to submit to the ordinance of human government. That is true. And not only are we to submit to the idea of human government, we are to support and promote the idea with our votes and select and prefer Christians as our leaders. Why? Because God wants it that way. When he institutes an ordinance, he wants his people involved 
in it. And therefore, listen, real Christians need to run for office. Real Christians need to vote for them. Now, I want you to think about this and keep that in mind, the phrase real Christians. Last election, there were a hundred million people that voted in the election, a little over that. Professed Christians by far are the single largest special interest group in our country, outnumbering every other group, whether it's ideological or whether it's uh, the lobbyist group or whatever particular cause. Listen, there are on the low side, the numbers are between 60 and 90 million professing Christians in these United States. So let's just take 60 million. Let's say 60 million Christians voted for Christians running for office. That means the church should be putting a leader in every office of the land. There's more of us than anybody else. And the truth is, when the church is in good health, the nation is going to be in good health. Because we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Now, I had somebody tell me one uh, some years ago, and I've heard it time and time again. Actually, I've had people tell me at the door multiple times around this time of year when I do something of this nature. You cannot legislate morality. Maybe some of you have heard that. Well, really? What do you think the Ten Commandments are? They are legislative morality. Thou shalt not. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's God saying to humankind, there are rules that you need to follow in order to live a blessed life. And I'll remind you that the Ten Commandments are the foundations for the very laws of our land. And therefore, every law is an attempt to legislate morality. And it's not just right, it's godly to do so. In Deuteronomy 28, 9 and 10, the Lord said, He will establish you, Israel, as a holy people to Himself, just as He has sworn to you. If, condition, you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. There's legislative morality. Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. We see down the road, as the children of Israel went from land to land conquering what God had given them, that that was indeed the case. When they honored God, other nations had fear struck in their hearts of them. Now, Moses is writing about the people of God. We are the people of God today, the church. We are to walk and live in such a manner that people can see that God is for us and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And listen, there is not one single group that can match the numbers of the church. And therefore, if we are an under administration that causes us to groan, we need to reverse that by collectively gathering together and voting for someone who is not an opportunity Christian, but a real Christian. Listen, LGBTQ rights, abortion. We live in a time where they're passing out condoms in schools and forbidding prayer. And this is not to be the reflection of the church in national policies. But it does reflect a worldly and divided church. It's the result of many in the church who have more zeal for their party affiliation than their divine association. And we need to remember we are the people of God and God has a divine order. But we also, in a republic such as ours, we have the divine privilege of being part of his plan. And the rampant moral decline in our country is largely from the church being uninvolved in the political 
process, God's institution and ordinance that he has ordained and thus his people need to get in the game. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, let's look again at verses 3 and 4. Paul makes this point. For rulers are not a terror of good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. There's kind of a no-brainer. And you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be very afraid. For he does not... Sorry, I always hear Elmer Fudd say that for some reason. I don't know why. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is... Next two words. God's minister. An avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now... Some may not warm up quickly to what I'm about to say, but let me just say this. You need to hear me out, for there is much said today that is actually contrary to Scripture. And so I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you God's statements from his word. Listen, like it or not, popular or not, God has been using one nation to punish another nation since there have been nations on the earth. In Leviticus 18, 24 to 25, We're told, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. And like Leviticus says, and Paul describes in Romans, the government has a divine responsibility to stand against and punish evil. Now, I think we recognize that war was not part of God's original plan. Well, he knew man was going to sin. He had to create man with the capacity of free will because the fact is, without free will, there's no such thing as love. They're just forced obedience and nothing more. All war is evil. Amen? War is evil. Killing of another human being, murdering another human being is part of the fall. And therefore, the Bible has legislated that evil is to be stood against. And when there is a righteous cause, war becomes, even if you will, a necessary evil. Now consider this. In Revelation 12, 7 to 9, we're told, and what's the next word? War broke out where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Come on, there's got to be more than that. They did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now listen, we also need to remember that the only thing that can bring peace on earth and the utopian experience many are longing and seeking at, longing for and seeking after today is the Prince of Peace coming back to rule and reign in righteousness on this earth. Now, what is going to allow that time of peace to happen on the earth that lasts for a thousand years? The answer is Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Where John says, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and does what? He makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. Who is this? It's Jesus. 
And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, say it please, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what all this reminds us of is not that our nation or any nation is to be a warmongering nation, nor should the government let everybody do as they please. But our takeaway is simply this. Listen, government authority has a God-given moral responsibility. Government authority has a God-given moral responsibility. Now, some would say, well, what about those who abuse it or forsake it? Well, we need to remember that at all times, Paul is telling us, God is in control and the ordinance remains his. Psalm 75, 7 says, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Listen, God is in control of all circumstances around the world. And he is the authority still over all creation. And I believe the point we have before us is so important in relation to what we established uh, in our first point, that the government's job is to punish evil. But we need to remember it's God's job to define it. And therefore, when you remove the church from the state, you have abandoned God's initial Ordinance. He is not wanting pagans or heathens or the ungodly to define morality. There's only one source that can define morality, and it is the Word of God. Therefore, the Word of God must be instrumental in all things done in any given nation, if that nation is going to be blessed by His hand. After all, Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to what? Any people. Sin is abounding in our country. We need to pray. Amen. We need to pray for our land. There's no question about that. And listen, we do not live under the heavy hand of dictatorship. We have the freedom to determine the spiritual temperature of our nation. And listen, we will not win the fight against abortion by voting people into office who support it. We need to have our voices heard. We need to have pro-life candidates running on every level of government in our land. And we, the church, need to be voting for them. Now listen, if our nation's definition of good and evil has been altered, we need to alter it back By voting for candidates who stand upon the word of God and placing godly people in high office, not those who are Christians for convenience, but those who are actually born again. Well, you might ask, and I can hear you thinking it, what if there's no true Christian on the ballot? Well, you don't skip voting. You vote for the candidate who is closest to our values. Now... Our faith is to be part of every aspect of our lives. And the government has a moral responsibility to bear the sword against evil. And thus Amos would also write in 5.15, Hate evil, love good, 
establish justice in the gate. Now remember, the gate of any given city, all the cities back then were walled, were where leaders would sit in judgment about matters of good and evil. And listen, it is the church's job to put a man or a woman of God in places of judgment in this country. And the job of our government is to execute wrath on evil. Therefore, godly men and women are essential, lest the divine responsibility become abused. Now, one more side note since you ask. You didn't know you asked, but you did. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12, since we're approaching an election season, I think that's worthy of mention. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Did you know that was in the Bible? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they what? Work in quietness and eat everybody else's bread. What's it say? Eat their own bread. Okay, you ready for this? Buckle up. Here it comes. The doors are already locked, so you can't leave. Here we go. Socialism is a sin. Socialism is a sin. It's a sin because it's against the will of God. Because God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul the Apostle to tell the church where this was being abused. You need to work and eat your own bread. Now, what we'll add from Romans 13, 1 to 7, is that it is the job of human government to protect the people, not provide for the people. Listen, God does not want people relying on the government for provision. Now, certainly our tax dollars should go to help some causes and situations that are unavoidable. But God's ordinance is that people work with their own hands and eat their own bread. Now, since the flood, rarely does God directly employ judgment without human assistance or involvement because the day of his direct wrath is yet to come. But he has given human government a moral responsibility and the church in our days should be the government's moral compass. And that includes on matters of social issues that are rising in our world today. I think it's shocking that we have open Marxist, open communist, open socialists running for the highest office in the land in this country where a generation ago that was absolutely unheard of. We are in a slide. Our country needs revival. Jesus is able and we need to call on the name of the Lord on behalf of our country. Amen. I was texting back and forth with Pastor Tom Hughes this morning and told him about this message. And I said, I may be starting a prison ministry soon if, if Big Brother's listening to this message. So please pray for me. So let's look at five to seven one more time. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
I don't know if, if many of you know that the IRS in the United States for 160 years has maintained what's called a conscience fund. And for 160 years, they have been receiving anonymous letters and cash or money orders in the mail. One letter that the IRS received said this, and I quote, I cheated on my taxes a few years ago and my conscience is bothering me and I can't sleep. I have enclosed a check for $500 and if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) Paul reminds us that our submission to human authority is actually an act of faith. Think about Joshua 1, 10 through 11, where Joshua was commanding the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for who? For yourselves, for within three days you will cross over the Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, as with Joshua and the nation of Israel, so too did the pilgrims cross over into a land where they sought and fought for freedom from taxation without representation. Now, let me give you a reminder of why this nation was established in the first place or what would become our nation by those who came over on the Mayflower. It's called the Mayflower Compact. And here's a segment of what the pilgrims wrote. It was their mission statement, if you will. And it reads as follows. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, this country was established for the purpose of advancing the Christian faith. Somebody say amen. Amen. And the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering, ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. In other words, we're going to bind ourselves together by covenant for the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of these United States, chosen to write the content of the Declaration of Independence, said this, quote, I have little doubt that the whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our creator and I hope to the pure doctrines of Jesus also. He proclaimed that it was the God of the Bible who founded America in 1805 in his inaugural address. He went on to say, I shall need too the favor of that being in whose hands we are who led our forefathers as Israel of old from their native land and planted them in this country. You know, it's funny that Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, two of our founders, are often used as the argument that our founding fathers did not believe in the God of the Bible. Well, you just read part of his inaugural address in 1805. And I'll also remind you that it was Benjamin Franklin who instituted prayer before every congressional meeting. He was the one who uh, told Congress, we need to be petitioning the one who sits on high before we ever make any decisions. Now, the two issues, freedom to worship and taxation, were confronted a hundred years apart. But they were both based on the single fact that God was giving those who sought to worship 
a new land. Much like when Joshua took his people out of the hand of spiritual oppression into the land of blessing. Now listen, today our goal may not be a new land, but our goal should be a renewed land. One that returns to our foundations. Now, consider in our text, nobody at the time of Paul's writing was more despised than one who was called a publican. They would be a Jew who collected taxes for Rome, and they were despised. And yet, Jesus included a publican within his original 12, a guy named Levi, who the Lord changed his name to Matthew. Yet Paul said to the church, that would include us, that God has ordained taxation as a means to fund the divine institution of human government. Now, obviously, that is not to be abused by those in power. But one thing we need to remember, the government has no money. That's our money. That's tax money. And this is what makes socialism a sin. It doesn't take government money to provide for others. It forcibly takes what one person has earned and gives it to another who's done nothing to earn it. There's a word for that. Stealing. And stealing is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Now, the government runs on our money. And therefore, should not God's people be involved in the oversight of how our money is spent? Well, of course it should. Now, here's the last thing I want you to consider this Independence Week Sunday. Listen, when the church honors God's word, national blessings will abound. When the church honors God's word, national blessings will abound. In a letter to William Bradford and the pilgrims from Pastor John Robinson of Leyland, Holland, where they had departed from, dated June 30th, 1621, Pastor Robinson was writing to Bradford and the pilgrims after the loss of 90 of the original 160 who crossed over to these shores to advance the Christian faith in a new land. He wrote this to them, and I quote, Brethren, I hope I need not exhort you to obedience unto those whom God hath set over you in church and commonwealth and to the Lord in them. It is a Christian's honor to give honor according to men's places and his liberty to serve God in faith and his brethren in love orderly and with a willing and free heart. In other words, what Robinson was reminding William Bradford and the surviving pilgrims was obedience to God will bless your newfound country, even obedience in the realm of paying taxes. Now, I didn't think I'd get an amen there, but I said it anyway. Now, First Peter two thirteen to 15 reminds us, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governor's or, or as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is what? This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now listen, if there is a single group that ought to be standing beside the divine ordinance of human government, it ought to be the church. For in doing so, we exalt the name of the Lord and thus invoke his blessings on our land. Whether it be through taxes, customs, sales tax, fear, honor, recognizing God's plan exalts God's name. 
And therefore, in this age of political activism, we ought to be actively influencing our nation spiritually for the good. Now, we need to vote according to our faith, not our party. Promoting the government's moral responsibility to punish evil and know that living this way acknowledges that these things are God's method of maintaining decency and order that his name might be exalted in all the earth. Now, does that mean that we agree with all of our nation's politics and policies? Gosh, I hope not, because we've got some terrible ones that have come on the scene in recent years. Does that mean we never stand up for what we believe? No, No, of course not. As a matter of fact, in Acts 5, 27 to 29, we're told when they had brought them, they set them before the council. These are the uh, disciples. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey what? God rather than man. Listen, when the government starts violating its own restrictions of the First Amendment, we ought to take a stand on and for the word of God in opposition to the movements of the government. And therefore... We cannot allow the government to infringe upon what the government itself has established as our own rights. And the authority and commands of God's word tell us there is a time for civil disobedience. And it is when we are told we cannot preach Christ and him crucified. After all, Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And by the way, the word nation there is goy. It stands for non-Jewish nations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his Inheritance Did not Peter establish for us that we are the chosen of God? Hello? Did not Peter establish that fact for us? And we need to be careful about blurring the lines between the church and Israel. But we need to be equally as careful about ignoring general principles that apply to all peoples and nations. And listen, the church is the inheritance of Christ. And as God's chosen people, as members of his body, therefore, the blessings that any nation is going to enjoy beyond the boundaries of the common grace of God, where he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, the sun rises on the evil and the good. Anything beyond that is going to be the sole responsibility of those who call upon his name. Now, Ray Stedman, a pastor up in the Bay Area during the Jesus movement, Wonderful and godly man, great Bible commentator, made a rather interesting statement. And I've heard him say it multiple times in different things I've listened to uh, that he preached. He said, Christians are the most important people on earth. Now, he qualified that by saying that doesn't mean that Christians are better than everybody else in the sense that that statement would be received. But what he meant was this. No group of people have the power and ability to impact a nation like the church. No one else, at least for good, I should say, no one else has attached to it a blessing associated with it just because their God is the Lord. That is something exclusive to the church. Now, what about when you're under a government that doesn't honor God? Well, thank you for asking, because Deuteronomy 26 has the answer in 6 to 9. 
Where Moses writes, but the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. And we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. With great terror, with signs and wonders, he has brought us up to this place and given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, God is in control. Amen. Right up to the end. And I'll remind you that the hand of our Lord is still mighty. He still raises one up. He still puts another down. And the fact is our God who has ordained human government is still running things from his holy habitation. And for conscience sake, we need to obey him. Because politics and religion stir up so much emotion, we need to just stand not on either of those, but we need to stand on biblical truth. And the hope for the future of the United States does not rest on the shoulders of the person who can resolve this health insurance catastrophe that everybody continues to talk about, nor the one who has the best foreign policy, nor the one who has the best economic strategy. Blessings upon this nation are dependent upon God and his people honoring his word. All nations in history who have denied him and separated church and state are either destitute or downright destroyed. For God's word proclaimed by God's people is the only moral compass the world has. And it is the only way that a nation can access the blessings of the Lord. Listen, church, are you here this morning? It's time to take back the land. It's time to take a stand for the Lord. And we'll do it one voice and one vote at a time. And we can assure that our children and grandchildren, should the Lord tarry, will have the privilege to live as one nation under God. Somebody say, Amen. And Father, we are grateful for our heritage. We are grateful that even in the midst of all the strange and bizarre and even ugly things we see happening in our world today, we have been a blessed people. We have been a nation that has been generous uh, in a way that no other nation can claim. And we have taken in those from other shores. We have had the opportunity to pursue life, liberty, and happiness And we have seen fit to do so under declarations made in accordance with your word. So we thank you for this great nation. But Lord, we also recognize that our nation is going the way of Israel and turning back from you. And Lord, we thank you that that which you said to Israel through Solomon is based on your nature and your character, therefore appropriate for our nation as well. You told Solomon, if your people go after other gods and forsake the laws and statutes of the land established by you, that if they would humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, you promised to hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We petition you on behalf of this great nation, establish on your word for the furtherance of your kingdom that you would forgive our sin and bring healing to our land and that we could again experience the blessings of a nation 
whose God is the Lord. Help us to do our part and not sit idly by and just watch things float downstream. But help us to be participants in the ordinance you created and desire the oversight to be done by your people. Help us in that, we pray. We thank you for this great nation. We thank you for the freedoms we still enjoy. We pray that they not continue to slip away, but that we would still enjoy all that has made our country great. We give you thanks for these things and this time in your word. In Jesus' name, and all the American Christians in this room said, Amen. Amen. Amen.